in February of 1836, a small group of Texan volunteers occupied a former Franciscan mission in present-day, or near-present-day, San Antonio, Texas. And among them was the famous Davy Crockett and other militiamen. And though they were vastly outnumbered by General Santa Anna's Mexican force, these Texan volunteers held out for 13 days in a gunfight before the Mexican invaders finally overpowered them. The Battle of the Alamo, as it became known, became a symbol of heroic resistance for the remainder of the struggle for Texan independence. And there became a a theme or a slogan that came out of this battle. Many of you will know, remember the Alamo. They became uh, passionate about that phrase and about that idea, and it became their war chant or their battle cry in the rest of their military uh, engagements. And as they met General Santa Anna's army later that spring, only a few months later, and won their independence, it was as they were shouting, remember the Alamo. Now, war and sports illustrations often get preachers in trouble with the ladies in the room, so let's restart the sermon. In the heart-wrenching romance novel by Nicholas Sparks, (laughs) titled The Notebook, we meet an elderly lady named Allie. And we find that Allie has Alzheimer's. And we learn that her husband, Noah, comes and reads to her daily and reminds her of their life together. We find that he reads to her from the notebook of their good times, of their bad times, of their romance, of their struggles. And as he reads to her, something magical happens. She remembers and she falls in love with him all over again, each and every day, because she remembers their story. Well, what's the point here? Why would I start in that way? Well, whether it's a battle cry, a a chant for uh, retribution, or a way in which you would get your wife to re-fall in love with you, our memories are vital to our daily lives. God has given us the gift of memory, and he's called us to use it, Not only for our daily lives and the things that we do every day, but for our spiritual lives as well. And as we read, we'll be in Deuteronomy 8 and 9 this morning, so if you could open your Bibles to those chapters. As we read through those chapters, you should be struck with the repetition of of two words in particular this morning. The word remember and the word forget. Those two words show up numerous times in these two chapters. And the point is that God is calling his people Israel in Deuteronomy and us today to remember certain things and not to forget certain things. It's two ways of saying the same thing, but the point is that God has called us to remember. There's something that happens in our hearts when we remember. To remind you of where we're at, Israel is standing on the east bank of the Jordan River They're preparing to go into the land that God has promised them for 40 years as they've been wandering in the wilderness. He's promised them a land of milk and honey, a land rich with blessing and fertile ground. And they're so close now on the bank of the river that they can see it and they desire this land that God has promised them. But there's at least a couple problems. There's a river that separates them and this land that they can see and that they desire. 
So the first problem is the river. The second problem is once they find a way across this river, there are giants in this land that, by the way, they've already been defeated by once because of their disobedience and lack of faith. And before they cross this river and engage these armies or these enemies, God reminds them of a few things through his servant Moses. Again, who would not be going in the land with them because of his own sin. So Deuteronomy is that word to the people of Israel. It's Moses' final farewell address to his people as they're preparing to go into the land under Joshua's leadership. And he starts out by giving them a history lesson. He begins by telling them in the first four chapters of their sin, their unrighteousness, and the consequences of their sin. Forty years of wilderness wandering. He also, though, in this history lesson, reminds them of God's faithfulness, that God is good in keeping his promises. And then in chapter, in chapter 5 and following, we see Moses begin to shift from a history lesson into uh, stipulations of their covenant relationship with God, principles that they should live by as God's people. We've been asking as God's people today, how do we look back on an ancient document like Deuteronomy that is God's word and live by those principles as well? How do we uh, take those principles and apply them to our lives? Chapter 5, we saw the Ten Commandments. We were commanded to trust and obey. And the rest of Deuteronomy really revolves around those Ten Commandments, their commentary on those principles, on those regulations. Chapter 6, we moved into the Shema, and we saw that we're to love the Lord in every facet of our lives with all of who we are. And then last week in chapter 7, we see this question. Who are you? Starting in verse 6, who are you? It's a question of our identity. As the children of God, as the people of God, it should affect the way we live and our behavior. And so in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to go deeper into an idea that we briefly mentioned in chapter 6. Remember back in chapter 6 when we were talking through what it looks like to love God, our third point that day was that we love God even when things are good, when things are going well and there's blessing in our lives and we can see those blessings, don't take our eyes off of God there but love him there. And we didn't spend much time on that idea in chapter 6 because I knew we would get to chapter 8 where we'll dig into this idea a little deeper. You see, God knew that one of their greatest struggles, that one of Israel's greatest struggles would be that as they move into the land, a land of blessing and and wealth, that it would be easy for them to take their eyes off of God and to forget God, their true blessing. You may be thinking this morning, well, I I don't know how this is going to apply to me because I'm not too wealthy. I'm okay, preacher. I'm, I'm fine. And if that's the case this morning, then it would do us well to load up this morning in a van and go down to Raleigh-Durham Airport and load up on a big 747 and fly to our brothers and sisters in Uganda or Ahmedabad, India, where we have brothers and sisters in Christ there, and to realize that every one of us in this room with shirts on our backs and shoes on our feet are among the most wealthy in this world. And to realize this morning that when things are going well, when we're financially secure, it's easy for us to think that I'm okay. And this is absolutely not the case. It's because when we get there and we think that things are okay, we take our eyes off of God and forget that if not but for Him, we would have none of this. And so these chapters this morning are going to give us that reality check. So let's get into Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll read most of chapter 8 and some of chapter 9 and summarize the rest. But again, this morning, listen for these words. Remember 
And don't forget, or do not forget. Point number one this morning, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, is this. Remember the Lord by looking to your past. Remember the Lord by looking to your past. This would be for us this morning, remembering him with hindsight. Remember him with hindsight. Look at verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you uh, know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Skip down to verse 14 because we're going to see more past tense remembering in verse 14. Lest, uh, take care lest your hearts be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's reminding them out of the house of slavery. Verse 15, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents And scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you, uh, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Many of you probably have Thanksgiving traditions like my family does, if not uh, uh, something similar. Where at Thanksgiving you sit around the table, maybe you do it on social media, but we would share uh, something that we're thankful for. Something that happened or something that we had last year that we're thankful for. And many times it's things like our homes or our families or our jobs or maybe our church um, or our health. Many of us, though, would find it strange in that moment sitting around that table for us to think him Uh, Thank him for negative things in our lives, the trials, the struggles, the difficulties in our lives. You can imagine how strange that might sound if in that moment someone thanks the Lord for a disease they contracted that year or uh, a sickness that they've had or they've been struggling with all year or getting laid off last March or the family car finally biting the dust this year. We don't, we don't thank him oftentimes for the struggles or the trials in our lives, but this text, God is teaching us that even those things in the past, even those things in our past that are difficult, verse 16, are to do you good in the end. It sounds like dad, right? When he gets that big leather belt out and he says, son, this is for your own good. Or this hurts me more than it hurts you. And as a child, you're thinking, oh, really? Let's reverse the roles and see if that's the case. You know what I'm talking about. If you, don't look at me like I'm the only one that's ever got the leather belt uh, taken out on me. Uh, how does God then, in a text like this, where he's reminded Israel that he's led them, that he's fed them, how does God use our past for our own good? 
Remember the point here. Number one is that we're remembering God as we look to our past. Well, the text tells us how God uses our past for our own good. First, he humbles us. Look at verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. Well, why would he humble us? Because we need it. Because if not, our heads become big with arrogance or pride and we quickly turn aside. That's the language that the text uses in Deuteronomy 8 and 9, that the people of Israel would turn aside because of their own pride, because of their own arrogance. Think about this. When Jesus begins his ministry, where did he immediately go? He goes to the wilderness. And it's to demonstrate meekness and humility. It's to demonstrate that he needed to be alone with his father. It's to demonstrate his dependence upon the father. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3 in the wilderness. That man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's in humility that we realize our need for the Father, that we can't do this on our own. And, and, it's, and it's there that God is teaching us of our, of our past. He's, humil- He's giving us humility. And so those moments in lives, and I think this is huge for men especially, because we like to you know, puff our chests up and, and take life on head on. And we have to realize that in those moments when God allows us to be humiliated or brought lower or taken down a notch, That we're not to resent those moments, but to celebrate and rejoice that in them he's doing this for our benefit. He's allowing this humility to happen in our lives for our own good. So he uses our past to humble us. What else does he do with our past? He tests us. Look at verse 2. You see it in the text. He is testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. David says in the Psalms, test me and try me. See if there is any wicked way in me. When has the last time that you've asked the Lord to test you? God, test me. I want to know if there's impurity in my heart. Reveal to me those places where I've not surrendered to you. Reveal to me those places where I'm walking unfaithfully. Test me, Lord. I want to see those places. As a teacher, if any of you are school teachers, that's why you give exams. You want to see where, where the students are improving and where there's still weaknesses in their thought. And this is the idea here that we would ask the Lord, Lord, test us that we might see as you see where there's weakness in our own lives, where there's sin and impurity in our own hearts. It also gives us an opportunity to glorify God there. That in the midst of those tests, our faith that he's given us, that's a gift from him. It's by his grace that we have faith. That in those moments, even in the dark days, our focus is not taken off of him. What else, what else is God doing with our past? Verse 3, he's teaching us. We, we've seen in the text that he uses our past to humble us. He uses our past to test us. Verse 3, he uses our past to teach us. It says this, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger. Well, why would a good and loving God, why would our Father allow that to be the case? Why would he let us hunger? Why would he let his children experience the pain of hunger? Well, look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. He let you hunger that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. This is teaching. This is inductive teaching. God is drawing his children into a situation so that they will learn from it. That in that moment, they realize that in those dark days, in those hard times, they're not to sulk and throw up their hands and say, woe is me and blame God, but to remember him in those moments. He's teaching. What, is, what else is God doing in our past? 
He's disciplining us. Verse 5 and 6. Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. This idea is not lost in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, verse 5, sounds really familiar to us and really similar to this. It says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What is this saying to us? It says to us that we should look back on our past. And as we look back on our past and see those times that the Lord brought us out behind the woodshed, so to speak, and the Lord broke out his leather belt on us, it should not cause us anger or frustration towards God, but it should cause us to rejoice. And that sounds really strange that when we would be disciplined, we would rejoice. But in that discipline, he's demonstrating to us that we are his kids, that he loves us, that we're his children. And as a father, you discipline your children for their own good. And that's why he's disciplined us. And so as we look back on our past and we see those times where we've been humiliated or we've learned or we've been taught or we've been tested, been disciplined, it should cause us to rejoice. So number one, we remember the Lord by looking to our past as we continue through the text. Point number two, we remember the Lord by looking to our future. The text makes a drastic shift in verse 7. If the first point encourages us to remember God with uh, hindsight, then this point in the remainder, verses 7 through 13, demands that we remember God with foresight. Looking forward, looking to the future. And you see that shift in verse 7. It says this, For the Lord your God is bringing you. It's no longer past tense looking back to how he led you, but now he is bringing you into a land, a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the, in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and be full. You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Take care lest you, again, pushing us to the, for, to the future, pushing us forward, take care lest you in the future forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Look at the way the Lord describes this land. It's a land of brooks of water, fountains of water, springs of water. Remember where they've been. They've been in the desert. What else would you want to see in this description of the land but water when you've been in the desert this long? Figs and pomegranates and olive trees and honey, eating without scarcity, abundance. What's the point here? These were vivid descriptors of the exact opposite of where they had been and what they had been experiencing in the wilderness, in the desert. Well, why would God give them this description, this vivid description of the land? It's so that they would long for this land, the fulfillment of his promise. It's so that they would want and desire this land, and in doing so, they would remember him and that he's promised this to them, and that it's their covenant with their God that he's delivering this land to them. Between 1930 and 1950, 
There was a phenomenon in the church in America that, that kind of took place. There were an abundance of hymns written in those years, old hymns of the faith that many of us know. And what's remarkable is that many of those hymns written between the 1930s and 50s were songs about heaven. And we could ask questions about the theology of some of them, but songs like I'll Fly Away, I've Got a Mansion Over the Hilltop, The Way of the Cross Leads Home, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, and When We All Get to Heaven. Why would it be the case that these songs were written in those years? Why an abundance of songs about heaven in those decades? Well, think about the context. Think about what's going on for Americans during those times. You've got World War, World War I, 1914 to 1918. Many of these hymn writers would have been alive then. You've got the Great Depression, 1929 to 1939. Widespread poverty in America during that time. And then you have World War II in 1939 to 1945. And so these men and women, these hymn writers, like the Israelites in the wilderness, were living in a land during dark days, hard times, incredible struggles, loss of loved ones. And they were longing for a new home. They were reading the scriptures and they were reading about an eternal home, a home where they would be with their father and they would commune with him. And they were reading these descriptions of heaven and they longed for it. They wanted that kind of a home, a home free of the struggles and trials that they were going through in America at that point. In their hearts, out of the abundance and overflow of what they were reading, they were writing these hymns about heaven and longing for that eternal home. This is what's going on with Israel. The Lord's reminding them there's more that awaits you. There's promise and blessing that awaits you across this Jordan River. Remember the Lord as you look to your future. Remember the Lord as you think about what awaits us, church family, in Christ. So we remember the Lord by looking to our past. We remember the Lord by looking to our future as we continue through the text. Number three, we remember the Lord when looking at our abundance. We remember the Lord by looking at our abundance. If the first point encourages us to look to our past with hindsight. And the second point demands that we remember the Lord with foresight. Then this point insists that we remember God with insight, with perspective, with the proper perspective. When we look around and see all the ways that the Lord has blessed us, when we look around and see the things that we have, it would be for us good to remember and have proper perspective about all of that. Verse 17, as we continue through the text. This is a strong warning. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Verse 18, you shall remember, there's our word again, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. How is the Lord correcting their perspective, correcting our perspective? Well, verse 17 is an incredibly strong warning. Beware unless you say in your lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
And some of us would look at a text like this and say, I can't imagine saying something like this. I can't imagine making an audacious claim like this, that I did this, that I warranted this, whatever this is in your life, whatever blessings and material things you have, I've I've earned this. And while some of us would never say those words, we so often live like that. Though we would never say that, we, and we wouldn't have the boldness to say that, we often live that way. That our power, that we've earned this, we, by hard work and sheer determination, have the things that we have. And it's often, sadly, the case that we say those things when looking at folks that are less fortunate or don't have the things that we have. Well, they're probably just lazy. They know how, they're not hard workers. They need to get out and get a job and earn it like I did. That's the attitude that we can often have in our own hearts. And so this morning, I'm not great at, at math, but I want to give you a math formula. God's provision plus our forgetfulness always equals arrogance, which leads to idolatry. God's provision, the things that he gives us, the blessings that God bestows on us, plus our forgetfulness always leads to our arrogance which leads to idolatry. And this is what God is warning Israel about, that he's blessed them, not by the work of their hands, but by his favor, his love. They have the things that they have. And so the, the call here, the challenge here, is to remember, to not let our forgetfulness get in the way and think that it's us that has warranted these things. Think about this. We have a shirt on our back and we have food in our bellies. We have a few coins rattling in the ashtray of our car and a stack of lumber that we've arranged into the shape of a house on a piece of land, and we have the audacity to think. We have the audacity to think because we would never say it, right? We wouldn't have the boldness to say it, but we have the audacity to think that we have a pretty good relationship with God, right? He's created everything that is and that our hard work, that our effort has warranted us ownership of that. And that's absolutely wrong. That's absolutely not the case. Everything that is, is his, He simply lets us steward it for a short while. And it's a short while. And the older I get, the shorter I realize that that time is. Everything that exists is his. We've not earned it. He's given it to us for a short time. Here is promise this morning. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. We love talking about the promises of God when they're those that we like. That I'll never leave you or forsake you. That if you call upon the name of the Lord your God, you'll be saved. And those promises are good and we should cherish those promises because they're, they're true and they're never failing. But we also, we can't pick and choose. We have to see promises like this and feel the weight of them as well. That if we forget the Lord our God, if we forget to remember him, if we fail to remember him, we shall surely perish. That in our arrogance and our pride, we will perish like these nations that are perishing before Israel. What an incredible, incredibly heavy thought that as they move into the land and they've seen God by the hand of slaves, former slaves, conquer these giants, these armies that are numerous and huge. They can't explain it except for the fact that God has done something, that by God's grace they've been able to conquer these lands and these peoples. And then God gives them the promise that if you forget me, you'll become like them. That's weighty. So remember the Lord by looking to our past with hindsight. Look, look, remember the Lord by looking to our future with foresight. Remember the Lord when looking at our abundance, what we have, the material blessings that we have, with insight, with proper perspective. 
with knowing that it's God and God alone, by his grace, that we have the things we have, most importantly, our salvation. But we continue this idea of remembering as we move into chapter 9. Number four, point number four, we remember the Lord as we recall our sin. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word uh, that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 6, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget. There's both of our words, again, together in one sentence. Remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. The Lord gives a pretty strong reminder here for them to remember their wickedness, for them to remember their sins. Well, what were their sins? Well, we're not going to read the rest of chapter 9, but let me help summarize them for you because that's what chapter 9 does. Real quickly, if you still have your Bibles open, we're going to walk through chapter 9 observing what are these sins that the Lord is reminding them of. Verse 8, at Horeb, you provoke the Lord to wrath. Verse 9 through 12 tells of how Moses met with God on the mountain and received the two tablets of the law. And then in verse 12, it moves us along in the story. We have the narrative of what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain. Verse 12, they have acted corruptly by making a golden idol. Verse 12, again, they have turned aside from the way. Verse 13, they were a stubborn people. Verse 16, they sinned against the Lord by making this golden calf. Verses 18 through 19, uh, Moses describes the way that he begged God on behalf of the people of Israel not to destroy them, but to have mercy upon them. Verse 20 and 21, Moses begs God on behalf of Aaron, who was the one in charge who led Israel to make this idol. Verse 22, you see that at Taberah, at Massah, and Kibaroth, the Lord was provoked to wrath. Each one of those occasions, the Lord saw the wickedness of his people Israel. And then verse 23, at Kadesh Barnea, they were told to go in and take possession of the land, yet they lacked faith and they rebelled against the command of the Lord. Verse 23, they did not believe or obey his voice. And then you get to verse 24, and there's this summary that summarizes what we've just read. Again, we've walked through these narratives of what the Lord has done. Again, I encourage you to go home and read chapter 9, and you'll see the details there. You'll see those, the specific uh, accusations against the people of Israel that the Lord, through Moses, reminds them of their sin. But then you get to verse 24, and there's this summary. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. What's the point here? The Lord is reminding them through Moses of their many sins. He's reminding them of the ugliness of sin and rebellion. 
That their remembrance, and in their remembrance, they would recall where they were apart from God's grace. They were in the wilderness. They would be worshiping idols. Aaron wouldn't exist because God would have killed him. And the people of Israel wouldn't exist because God's wrath would have been poured out upon them. And people often say, well, you know, don't, don't dwell on the past. Put that behind you. This text this morning is calling us to remember our sins. And so this morning, I'm telling you to dwell on your past, to dwell on your sins. Not in an unhealthy way. In times past, there were monasteries where monks would cut themselves or wear torture devices to cause them pain so that they're ever reminded of their sin. And that's a little bit crazy, so I'm not encouraging that. Don't go and spend your memorial weekend building some torture device to inflict pain upon yourself, but we should have a healthy reflection upon our past, on where we were apart from Christ. This text even calls specifically, like the places they were and the sins they committed, the building of idols and golden calves. And so this morning, it would be helpful for us in a moment of contemplation, in a time of, of, of meditation with the Lord to remember just where we were When the Lord called us by his grace, the sins that we had committed, those things that we had done out of uh, unfaithfulness, out of rebellion. That's what he's doing here. He's reminding them in the first part of chapter 9 of their wickedness on these accounts, these accusations, these charges, Israel. You had rebelled. You had strayed from me. So this morning we remember the Lord by looking to our past. We remember the Lord by looking to our future. We remember the Lord when looking at our abundance with the proper perspective. And then we remember the Lord as we recall our sin. But that's not where the text ends, friend. And that's really good news for us. Number five, point number five, we remember the Lord as we recall our salvation. We remember the Lord as we recall our salvation. Look at verse 25. Moses continues, And so I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said that he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now all along we've been being told to remember and now, then now Moses is going on behalf of the Lord in prayer. He's begging God in prayer. And now in verse 27, he's saying, God, you remember your servants, the ones you've made your promise to, the ones you have covenant with. And he continues, verse 27, do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And so Moses, here in these verses, he's going before the Lord and he's begging God for forgiveness, for grace to be upon the people of Israel. Moses is reminding God here that these people are his people, his treasured possession that we learned last week, his segula, those that he set his love upon. It's not like God is forgetful or needed reminding. It's not like he was, oh, thanks, Moses, I had forgotten that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. No, it's not that God is forgetful, but it's that the Lord loves. He takes delight in his children praying his word back to them. That Moses would go before him and say, God, you've said this. 
These are your people. You've promised us. We're in covenant with you. Remember us and and don't destroy us. The Lord delights in that because it's a demonstration of faith. That God, we're trusting your word. That when you said this, you meant it. And that you're going to see it come to fulfillment. If you continue in chapter 10, and we're not going to cover all of chapter 10, but verses 1 through 5, God gives Moses a second set of commandments, tablets, that he's written his word on, his law on, because Moses, in anger, broke the first set. As you continue, he gives Moses orders for building an ark that would go with the people, that would contain the tablets. It would exist as the place where God resided among his people. And you hear what's happening there. Even in that, we're not reading those verses, but in in the first five verses there, he's telling his people that he's going to be with them, that he's going to reside with them, that salvation is coming, that God will be with his people in this ark and symbolized in this ark, and the the, the commandments would be there, that God's not going to destroy them, that he's going to be there. Then you get to verses 6 through 9, and again, we're not going to read those for the sake of time. This is where the Lord is demonstrating to them the the Levite priests and their role for Israel. What the Levites were to do and their relationship to God and their relationship to the people and the blessing that they were to be to both. And then you have verses 10 and 11, and this is where we'll end. And this is really, really good. Moses says, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord listened to me at that time also. And the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of your people, so that they may go in, to, uh, go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. You have chapter 9, which is incredibly negative. It's reminding them of their sin. It's reminding them of their rebellion, of their unrighteousness, reminding them of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on these other nations because of their sin and reminding them that they've been as guilty as these other nations and the ugliness of that guilt. And then you have Moses going before God, begging God on behalf of the people not to destroy them. And it's really unsure at that moment where the text is heading. And then you have this incredible statement. That the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. The people were saved. The people were forgiven. They were shown mercy and grace in this moment. And there's incredible application here for us this morning as his church today. We would do well to remember our sins. Do well to remember our rebellion. Our unrighteousness. But also as his children, we are not left there. That's not the end of the story. That's not where it ends for his people. (laughs) We are told as he told Israel, and hear this this morning, church. If this is you, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ and repented of your sins, then hear these words read over you because they are for you. He was unwilling to destroy you. That's what the text says. And let's be clear, we we deserved that destruction. Our sins warranted that destruction. But here's the beauty of the gospel, friends, is that Jesus, his son, bore our destruction on the cross. That destruction that we deserved, that penalty that we deserved for our sin, he carried it to the grave when he died on our behalf. That's the glorious news of the gospel. That as the Lord turned in his anger from his people of Israel, he turns in his anger from us as a result of his sons taking our penalty, taking our destruction. And he says to us this morning, I was unwilling to destroy you. So this morning, church family, remember God as we recall our salvation. Remember him as we look to our past. Remember him as we think about what awaits us in glory, as we look to our future. 
Remember him as we think about our blessings and our abundance. Having the proper perspective when we look at all the things around us that we enjoy and take for granted every day. Remember him as we recall our sin. Remember him as we recall our salvation. And memory is an incredible thing. And and I'm going to be a sappy dad for a moment. But watching Desmond grow up, he's a year and a half old. And even at a year and a half, his mind is soaking in so much. And his memory is so incredible to watch. We, uh, we went and watched the airplanes at the air show last weekend. And he can hear even a lawnmower now. And he's looking at the skies, looking for the airplanes. Because he remembers seeing airplanes. And he hears that sound. And man, that's all he wants is airplane, airplane, airplane. Or he sees a picture of a tractor. And he immediately begins calling for Paul because he knows Paul has a tractor. And Paul takes him for riding on the tractor. Even at a year and a half old, his memory is, is developing And he has thoughts and memories. And Lord has blessed us with that. He's given us that so that we may even use those things to remember him and to worship him because he's a good God who loves us. And we see that in our past. We see it in our future. We see it in everything he's given us and done for us. But most importantly, we see that in that he would kill his own son so that we can have a relationship with him. Remember your salvation this morning, church family. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that even as we go through difficult and dark times, dark days, hard things, that God, even those things should call us to remember you and worship you because you've not left us, that you have not abandoned us, but that you have been with us and you've promised your spirit to be with us. And so this morning, as we respond to you, God, help us to remember you. God, it's incredible the way your spirit and in your providence, dates and texts come together. And that on a weekend like Memorial Day, when we remember the freedoms that we have and those that fought for those freedoms. Father, we're in a text like, like Deuteronomy 8 and 9, where we remember you above all things. Above all things that we would remember And memorialize, God, we remember you, our great God, who's made salvation possible. So this morning, Father, we pray that we would respond and worship you as the giver of all good things. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.